Hello, this is R.J. Deacon with the Supreme Court Decision Syllabus Podcast. Uh, I'm just doing a basic check of my equipment and uploading ability before the new session starts. So I figured I would read a case that uh, was recently argued before the court this week. The case argued a bit about uh, Montgomery versus Louisiana. And that was a decision in 2016 from the 2015 session. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, upload that, and make sure everything's working before we get the new session. Uh, so here we are. Montgomery versus Louisiana. Certiori to the Supreme Court of Louisiana. Argued October 13th, 2015. Decided January 25th, 2016. Petitioner Montgomery was 17 years old in 1963 when he killed a deputy sheriff in Louisiana. The jury returned a verdict of guilty without capital punishment, which carried an automatic sentence of life without parole. Nearly 50 years after Montgomery was taken into custody, this court decided that mandatory life without parole for juvenile homicide offenders violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments. That was Miller v. Alabama. Montgomery sought state collateral relief arguing that Miller rendered his mandatory life without parole sentence illegal. The trial court denied his motion, and his application for a supervisory writ was denied by the Louisiana Supreme Court, which had previously held that Miller does not have retroactive effect in cases on state collateral review. The Supreme Court held. The decision was reversed and remanded, and Justice... uh, Let's see... Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. This court has jurisdiction to decide whether the Louisiana Supreme Court correctly refused to give retroactive effect to Miller. Teague v. Lane, a federal habeas case, set forth a framework for the retroactive application of new constitutional rule to convictions that were final when the new rule was announced. While the court held that new constitutional rules of criminal procedure are generally not retroactive, it recognized that courts must give retroactive effect to new watershed procedural rules and to substantive rules of constitutional law. Substantive constitutional rules include rules forbidding criminal punishment of certain primary conduct and rules prohibiting a certain category of punishment for a class of defendants because of their status or offense. That was uh, Penry versus Linaw. Court-appointed amicus contends that because Teague was an interpretation of the federal habeas statute, not a constitutional command, its retroactivity holding has no application in state collateral review proceedings. However, neither Teague nor Danforth v. Minnesota, which concerned only Teague's general retroactivity bar for new constitutional rules of criminal procedure, had occasion to address whether states are required, as a constitutional matter, to give retroactive effect to new substantive rules. When new substantive rule of constitutional law controls the outcome of a case, the Constitution requires state collateral review courts to give retroactive effect to that rule. This conclusion is established by precedents addressing the nature of substantive rules, their differences from procedural rules, and their history of retroactive application. As Teague and Penry indicate, substantive rules set forth categorical constitutional guarantees that place certain criminal laws and punishments 
altogether beyond a state's power to impose. It follows that when a state enforces a prescription or penalty barred by the Constitution, the resulting conviction or sentence is, by definition, unlawful. In contrast, where procedural error has infected a trial, a conviction or sentence may still be accurate and the defendant's continued confinement may still be lawful. See Shiro versus Summerlin. For this reason, a trial conducted under a procedure found unconstitutional in a later case does not automatically invalidate a defendant's conviction or sentence. The same possibility of a valid result does not exist where a substantive rule has eliminated a state's power to prescribe the defendant's conduct or impose a given punishment. See United States versus United States coin and currency. By holding that new substantive rules are, indeed, retroactive, Teague continued for a long tradition of recognizing that substantive rules must have retroactive effect regardless of when the defendant's conviction became final. For a conviction under an unconstitutional law is not merely erroneous, but it is illegal and void and cannot be a legal cause of imprisonment. See Ex parte Siebold. The same logic governs the challenge to a punishment that the Constitution deprives states of authority to impose. That'd be Penry. It follows that a court has no authority to leave in place a conviction or sentence that violates a substantive rule, regardless of whether the conviction or sentence became final before the rule was announced. This court's precedents may not directly control the question here, but they bear on the necessary analysis for a state that may not constitutionally insist that a prisoner remain in jail on federal habeas review, uh, jail on federal habeas review may not constitutionally insist on the same result in its own post-conviction proceedings. That was kind of clunky, but that's the way they wrote it. Miller's prohibition on mandatory life without parole for juvenile offenders announced a new substantive rule that, under the Constitution, is retroactive in cases on state collateral review. The foundation stone for Miller's analysis was the line of precedent holding certain punishments disproportionate when applied to juveniles. Relying on Roper versus Simmons and Graham versus Florida, Miller recognized that children differ from adults in their diminished culpability and greater prospects for reform, and that these distinctions diminish the peniological justifications for imposing life without parole on juvenile offenders. Because Miller determined that sentencing a child to life without parole is excessive for all but the rare juvenile offender whose crime reflects irreparable corruption, it rendered life without parole an unconstitutional penalty for a class of defendants because of their status, i.e. juvenile offenders whose crimes reflect the transient immaturity of youth. Miller, therefore, announced a substantive rule of constitutional law, which, like other substantive rules, is retroactive because it necessarily carries a significant risk that a defendant, here the vast majority of juvenile offenders, faces a punishment that the law cannot impose on him. A state may remedy a Miller violation by extending parole eligibility to juvenile offenders. This would neither impose an onerous burden on the states nor disturb the finality of state convictions.
and it would afford someone like Montgomery, who submits that he has evolved from a troubled, misguided youth to a model member of the prison community, the opportunity to demonstrate the truth of Miller's central intuition, that children who commit even heinous crimes are capable of change. The decision below was reversed and remanded. Justice Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan joined. Justice Scalia filed a dissenting opinion, in which Justices Thomas and Alito joined. Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion. Thank you for listening, and again, this has just basically been a test of making sure everything's still working on the podcast, so uh, stay tuned for the actual decisions of this term.